Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to episode 124 with my guest, Amber Tozier. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, there is uh, Mentalpod is also the name you can follow me on on Twitter. And somebody uh, has created a subreddit on the website Reddit um, for Mentalpod. It's reddit.com slash r slash mentalpod. And um, apparently some people have already uh, joined it and uh, subscribed to it. So... Um, Go there and uh, check it out, all you Reddit people. Um, what did I want to say? Um, I think I mentioned on the last episode or two that I may be doing a show in Toronto, um, November 15th and 16th. And if you would, um, if you're interested in coming, I'm trying to get a head count. Go to the forum, and then under the thread uh, is a Mental Illness Happy Hour show feasible in your area. Um Click on that, and then there's uh, one that says, I think it says Canada or Toronto, and uh, there's a poll there that you can you can take. Or you could just fucking email me and say, yeah, I'm definitely coming. Could I make that possibly any more complicated? Um, before we get to the interview with uh, Amber, I want to uh, read an email that I got from a listener named David. He writes, hi, Paul, this is not a woe is me, I wish I were dead diatribe about getting fucked by life, really. I've gone through the five stages of grief regarding my nonverbal learning disorder slash autism diagnosis and finally came to acceptance. And I found work within the scope of my surgical tech slash medical background. It's actually a job I once swore I would never do, working in the sterile processing department, also known as SPD. 
Nobody who has a certification as a surgical tech wants to be an SPD. Often it's described as being a glorified dishwasher. The pay is low, it's hot, messy, physical, and highly regulated. I think being a certified surgical tech going to SPD would be similar to a sous chef stepping back to washing dishes and doing prep. But an old skydiving buddy told me that if I change the way I view things, then the things I view will change. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me six months or even three months ago. But something finally clipped, clicked and it made sense. I began looking at SPD as the foundation of surgery. Without clean, sterile, and properly cared for instruments, there can be no surgery. If the instruments are not properly cared for, patients get non-sacomial hospital-acquired infections. In fact, my wife got hepatitis C from an improperly sterilized endoscope a few years back. Working in SPD, I can do my part to protect patients from such occurrences, and the job actually melds with my NLD in such a way that I can excel. Plus, I don't have to deal with bitchy circulators and sociopath surgeons. Thank you for that, David. And that reminds me of a quote from Viktor Frankl, uh, the Holocaust survivor, who wrote this amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning. And one of the quotes from it is, uh, he says, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. You go to a support group. It's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is one percent event. My body was abused. Ninety-nine percent judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. I'm here with Amber Tozier, who she's a a stand-up comedian, and uh, most of you would probably know her from Last Comic Standing. Uh, Where where would people know you from? Um, Well, Last Comic Standing was in '08, I think. So that was for that was a few years ago. Um, I don't know where they would know me from Twitter, (laughs) Twitter, or just doing comedy in LA. Or New York. I'm really not that famous. It's okay. Do you want to leave now? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're like, all right, laters. <laughs> no. Um, I can't remember what it what it was. Uh, you had tweeted something or you were following me on Twitter and we exchanged some tweets or something. There was something about you that I was like, I wonder if she'd be a good guest. And so uh, I think we exchanged emails or something. Um do you remember how this came somebody to be? Somebody said, somebody on Twitter said, hey, you should do the mental pod. And I, and I was like, oh, okay. And then you and I started out replying and then we started DMing. So somebody introduced us on I gotcha. Twitter. Yeah. Okay. I always like to try to trace it back to to where it, uh, where it came from. Especially when it's somebody that I've never met in person before. So... Um, where would be a good place to, to start with your with your story. I mean, one of the things that intrigues me is a joke that you have 
how, how do I not go to this place? One of your jokes is, I'm 70% heterosexual, 30% gay, 100% alcoholic. Oh. <laughs> That's an older one. It made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty that's pretty much what what are you interested in? The the gay part? The uh, the, the the drinking part? Is that is that a joke? Is drinking a, a an issue for you? Yeah, well, I have 5 years uh, of sobriety. Thank God. Um yeah, it was a huge issue for me. It was I didn't really start until I was like 21, 22 like heavy drinking, but it went on for a hardcore when I was living in New York, just like every single night. And, uh, yeah. So it, to answer your question, it's an issue. And well, even sobriety is still like, and I feel just as crazy in sobriety sometimes as I did when I had, you know, 10 vodka gimlets. I, I totally relate. You know, the, the, the thing about sobriety is now you get to feel your feelings. So how are you going to deal with them? Oh, my God. What are, what are some common feelings that, that come up for you that, that fuck with you? I get that, like, pit in the stomach a lot. And it's, it's I mean, it's all fear. But I think... I mean, every, I think everything is, all, all the horrible feelings are based in fear. But physically, I get a pit in my stomach and I start obsessing about one thing that's making me nervous in my life. And then it's like, worst case scenario, oh, here's an even worse case scenario. Like, each thought gets darker and darker. And then I'm like, maybe I should make a phone call to a friend. <laughs> or, you know, write a joke about it. But it's mostly... I think it's uh, whatever's making me nervous or I have anxiety about, I obsess about, and then, boom, it takes me down with, with each thought about it. Do you have panic attacks? No, I, th no, not, I used to get panic attacks when I was hungover. I think more in sobriety, you know when you're hungover and it's just like. Oh my God, what did I do? Yeah, or you can't even go to the grocery store and like pay, like, you know, just like mm -hmm. little things. So I used to get little panic attacks um, when I was hungover. But in sobriety, no, I, I, I maybe um, I don't even know like what a panic attack. Well, then, then you definitely d don't have panic attacks because yeah. if you if you've experienced a panic attack, you you would you would you would know. Yeah, somebody described it as. Um, well, I've, the, the, one of the surveys we have on the website is struggle in a sentence, and I always love when somebody's able to encapsulate what something is like in a, in a single sentence. And some of the ones that stick out for me is uh, that feeling when you're slipping on ice, but it's all the time. It, it's like continuous. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's so scary. Yeah. Like you're gonna break your tailbone forty times. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, congratulations on the on the five years of of sobriety. Thank you. That's that's fantastic. You want to talk about your home life or childhood, or would that be an okay place to start? Sure. Um, my childhood. 
depending on what kind of mood I'm in, I'm always like, oh, my parents, if I'm in a good mood, I'm like, oh, my parents did the best they could. And if I'm in a bad mood, I'm like, they fucked me up. <laughs> I'm so fucked up. <laughs> no, uh, my mother is, my mother's amazing. She, she's like a workaholic, sort of tough, tough loving um, but I think she had to be because her dad was an alcoholic. So she was raised in chaos. And then she married my dad, who's an alcoholic. And he was, um, he was a closet drinker, I think. Because I never saw him drunk. And he was manic depressive. When I was three, he got in this huge car accident. And um, ev- like after that, he just hardly ever came out of the bedroom. And before that, my mom said he was partying all the time. He was like the life of a party, super funny. Um, but then he got in a really bad car accident and it changed it everything. Was it because he was injured or somebody else was injured that he, it changed him? He was injured, broken neck, broken back. And it was in this, when did he, I think it was 1980. So, you know, he was like in the body cast. Mm. My first memory of him is like walking into the bedroom and he's in like a body cast. Wow. Yeah. Like, looking at him through the hallway, and he's just laying there. That's, That's my first memory of him. Because I was, yeah, I was three. And wow, I, that's intense. I know. So, uh, so my dad was like... He just kind of withdrew after that? Yeah. Big time. And I don't know if he was drinking. The The reason why I think he was drinking, because when I was... Um, Oh, They're going cute. to get him right now. That's we're cute. we're at Amber's uh, apartment in uh, in West Hollywood. Um, what was I saying? Oh, I think he was drinking. He, my mom said that he was a. Um, Is he still alive? Nope. When did he die? When I was twenty seven, seven years ago. Okay. Eight years ago. Yeah, pills and booze. Oh, that killed him. Um, a maintenance man found him in his apartment. Mm. This is so dark. I've never okay. talked. I've never. I don't think I've ever said this stuff into a microphone before. Um, what What is it? What are you experiencing right now talking about it? Well, it's super sad. It's okay. It's like. Um, it's just sad because I think he had a very sad life and I have regrets because, um, I didn't know what alcoholism is. I didn't know it was like a mental illness. I just thought he was a bummer. I thought he was a loser bummer. And so my high school years, I was just like, you know, you're, you, when you're a, a high school girl, you're a bitch anyway. But if you have like a deadbeat dad, you're really bitchy. So I was just like, I can't handle him. And he tried so hard. Even I, He tried harder after my mom divorced him because I think he got scared of being alone. So he was like, I need these kids in my life. And by that time, I was like, nope, too late. I don't, I, I, there's too much hatred. But he would show up to my high school games. Like every single picture I have from my sporting events, my dad took because he um, was into photography. And I just look back and I'm like, he was trying as best as he could. He was just so sick. He was super sick um, with the depression. And God only knows if he had like brain damage or something from the accident plus alcoholism. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. And it's like no matter how much 
you love your kids, if you're an untreated alcoholic, that's going to rub off. That stink or whatever you want to call it is going to is going to rub off. No matter how well intentioned you are, you know, addictions are so fucking powerful and so warping that Yep. But some people never are able to break through that illusion that I can handle this. I just need to numb myself with my addiction and then I can still function and they don't see that that's that's muting the beautiful person that is inside them and has always been inside them. Mm-hmm. That's that's what's so frustrating and especially after you after you get sober and you see yourself transform, you know that's possible for other people, but you can't you can't pound that into your into their brain. They have to their lives have to get so shitty and they have to come so close to death or not wanting to live that they're willing to go, okay, I'm going to start yeah. talking about this. I'm going to start, I'm going to try a new way of living. And it's so frustrating. Does that, that's got to make you, I don't know, what, what you having gotten sober, what, what does it make you think when you think about your dad? And him never having gotten something that was so accessible. I I feel like, well, I feel lucky. I mean, I, I of course I feel horrible for him, but I, and I'm thankful in a sick way that he went out like that because I don't know. I would think about that a lot, being like, oh my, I'm gonna die like my dad. This is insane, and I couldn't stop. So. I'm th- I'm thankful that um and nobody in my family talked about anything. So it was just like dad's crazy, let's take him a plate of food for Thanksgiving, you know, for 10 years. And then I get a call that he, you know, and he would say that he I remember him like having um now now that I'm we're, t- we're talking about this when I would go over to his like small sad apartment he would have booze and he'd be like oh I have to drink because I have a toothache and I don't have you know dental insurance so I have to drink for whatever you know my back hurts he always had health issues so now I'm like and 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 that's so alcoholic too to come up with a reason why you've got to continue your drinking you know the, the mental the mental part of alcoholism is it will come up with it's the best lawyer in the world at coming up with a reason why tonight will be the last night you need to keep your it's addiction it's genius it's genius it is and it's so convincing oh my god and your dad probably truly believed that 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 was the best solution for right. him but go ahead i cut you off um so you would go there and he would say i got to drink cuz my back hurts or my toothaches right and i never thought he oh he's an alcoholic I mean, I was in my 20s at this point when he was in that small, sad apartment, and I was living in New York. And it was called the Small Sad Apartments, which... <laughs> yes, the Small Sad Apartment <laughs> Complex. Oh, God. Such Where a loneliness lives. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is so sick. I have a half-brother who's sober now. He's awesome. He lives in Texas, but he was, like, cleaning... He, he was drinking at the time. We were both drinking, but... He went to help clean out my dad's small sad apartment and he was shit faced and he fell like 
off the railing like two stories what how this happened i went to, we went to go like help like clean out my dad's thing and he was like oh, i think i broke my leg and it was wasted i'm like what oh is God. wrong with my family and then i'm like start drinking i'm like everybody's so fucked <laughs> up and i get wasted <laughs> but um yeah, so I, now that I think, you know, my dad was drinking a lot towards the end, of course. But I never saw him drunk as a kid. He would either do it in his room, but my mom said that he was a bender. Like, he'd go on these tears and then be sober for six weeks and then go on a tear. And, uh, and it's probably easy to convince yourself you're not an alcoholic yes. if you're uh, that type. I know. I could quit for a few weeks at a time. No, pro- It wasn't fun, but I could do it. Mm-hmm. It was even worse because then it was just a huge head game. Being like, I'm not, I can't be an alcoholic. I didn't have a drink for two weeks. Next five days, blackout. (laughs) There is nothing like hearing back what you did after a blackout. (laughs) That is, oh my God, that should, there should be a picture of people's faces uh, under shame in the dictionary when you're, when you're you're in a blackout. Oh my God. Well, one of my prop, well, it was, I guess, a blessing and a curse. I would black out, but be totally normal. I would call people and be like, what did I do last night? I don't remember anything after, you know, whatever, two o'clock. And they're like, oh, we just, we went to a diner and we had an omelet. I'm like, I ate an omelet, you know, but they weren't like, and then feel shame. (laughs) Oh my God, I had (laughs) eggs. But yeah, so I could operate sort of, normally i don't know sometimes i would end up crazy places but i never got in fights i was never angry i was very happy i was a happy chatty drunk who liked to dance (laughs) i like to dance but um yeah so that made you know that made me think everything was fine i guess one of the things that you shared with me and this is one of the things i love about doing this show is when I get to see people have a tiny epiphany through a correspondence. Sometimes I'll I'll see this when people are taking a survey, they'll start to write something and then they'll say, oh my God, I never thought, you know, and they'll make a connection Uh all of a sudden. Do you remember the connection that you made about your, the, the time that you went to stay at your dad's and he had all the pictures up in the room you were staying in? Oh, of the women? Yeah. Oh, and why? That's why I'm a tomboy, maybe? Yeah. You, you, oh, you yeah. said, oh my God, maybe that's right around when I started dressing like a boy. Right. Oh, yeah, because my dad... Can you talk about that? Sure. My dad wanted to be a photographer after my parents got a divorce. and uh, And so he had this like little studio, and he would take pictures of women, basically, in lingerie. And so my bedroom was ha, was like part of his studio. He had some stuff downstairs, but my bedroom was part of his his workspace. So there were pictures of women in lingerie all over my bedroom when I would when I'd go there on the weekends. I think it was every every other weekend, every weekend, whatever. So I was like, you know, what did that feel like walking into that room? I was I think it was ten. For a second, I was like, oh, she's pretty. And then I was like, my dad's a pervert, you know? (laughs) I knew what a pervert was. I knew 
I knew th- that sort of I'm like, oh, my dad just likes pretty girls. But did you think my dad's a shitty photographer? <laughs> yeah, he he sort of was. <laughs> he sort of was. I mean, I gotta <laughs> say, lingerie photography is like if there's was the eighties. Uh, you know, like there's some <laughs> there's some really cool, interesting nude photography out there, but like lingerie photographer, that that's like it doesn't get any more stereotypically bad than that. Yeah, and these girls wanted to be models. I, I, th- of course, I was. I'm trying to think if he was doing it for like a lingerie company or if it was more for the. Mo- I think it was like the models, but it was bad. It was. <laughs> But I don't know. Yeah, and then I start. Yeah, I, I dress like a tomboy. I don't know. I'm, I mean, did you I'm, ask him to to? Did you address it with him no. that it made you uncomfortable? No. I mean, it sounds like that the where you were raised, like discomfort was never voiced about things. You just kind of buried it and oh, s- shut down or numbed out. Silence. The loud silence. It's the worst. Oh, my God. It's the worst. It is. And you don't really know. Maybe I should just speak for myself, but you don't know that you are engaging in the sickness by burying it and not talking about it and not voicing it. But if you've never seen an example of an adult voicing it, you don't know how to say it yourself. Right. Or, or, or I would say it's pretty rare the kid that is able to kind of start their own script and say, you know, I'm going to stick up for myself or I'm going to, you know, I was talking uh, about somebody the uh, the other day. This person has a, a, a problem confronting people. This person lets people walk on him and turns out his dad was a bully which is not surprising because if you don't learn how to like stand up for yourself as a kid, as an adult, where are those words going to come from right. to, to stick up for yourself? If you don't learn them from somebody else or a therapist or a support group or something, it's the words, the words escape you or, or maybe you don't even think to go there right to, to go hey this is uncomfortable or what you're doing is wrong or you're being inappropriate you oh. just yeah or you truly believe that it's your fault <laughs> yes that's you know if a bully punches you because they don't like your shirt you're like oh my god, god. my shirt is dumb that's the worst yeah. i mean it's one thing to have resentment being like oh that asshole one day i'll get him but to, to truly believe that your shirt sucks, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible how much the roles we played and assumed as children uh, affect us as adults and how hard it is to break to break out of that, to, to learn a different way to react to those situations. Yeah, I think... I mean, it's easier as you get older to speak your mind. I I think regardless of your childhood or maybe like whatever self-help stuff that you're getting involved in, because I think the 20s are just like mental puberty for everyone where you 
you don't know exactly what you want, but you want to try everything. And you, so you're like, hey, like you're so enthusiastic and want everybody to like you and say, you know, want to be perfect. And then in your 30s, you're sort of like, like this, don't like that. Um, this is getting tiring. Yeah, I'm, I'm wasting too much time on certain types of people. But if you don't, I, yeah, if you don't have life skills to begin with. You're just you just keep repeating. Don't they say like you keep repeating things that happen in your childhood until you learn your lesson I've or until that. you figure it out? Yeah. Or until you get hit by a truck. Right. So was it a conscious decision to start dressing as a tomboy? Do you do you was there a, a, a feeling of, ooh my my dad looks at all women this way. He I'm a female I don't I don't remember thinking of it like that really I wasn't like ooh if I dress cute my dad will look at me I don't think maybe deep 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 down but my dad was very like appropriate in that way as far as if anything, he was angry. There he was, was appropriate without a camera in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> he was appropriate with his kids. I mean, besides, like, beating us occasionally. But, you know, like, there was nothing. I never felt threatened like a, like a pervy uncle. You know, I've had right. a pervy uncle where I'm like, never like that. So I don't know. But maybe I just... I, I, I don't remember having a thought of being like, I'm going to be a tomboy. My mom used to put me in dresses a lot, like she, I like a doll, frilly, frilly dresses. And I was like uncomfortable. I was like, I don't like these nylons or these shoes with buckles. And then once I started playing sports, I'm like, yeah, this is my style. So and you, you were a basketball player in high school and and in college. Yes. Yep. College ball. Um, Can you talk about what you what you got from from playing basketball and what it felt like when it was good when basketball was good i just i had so much fun it was such a fun sport and i was good at it so i had confidence Were you it, guard point guard yeah. yeah so in high school it was Did you have like, a good three-pointer yes three-pointer was better than the jumper yeah yeah because i feel like with jumpers you they're you know they're five feet they're ten feet but three-pointers it's the same distance Oh, that's, that's true. That's my theory. That's true. I never thought about that. Yeah, so I sort of can memorize the distance with a three-pointer, but with a jumper, I was always a little nervous. And there's something, too, that's so badass when you sink a three-pointer, because it's the most difficult shot in, in basketball, really. I mean... It's the best. People are always kind of amazed, even though people do it. Yeah. It's still kind of a like, oh, holy fuck, you know, it's right up there with a dunk, I think. Yeah. It's the white person's dunk. Oh, it's the best, like, when somebody's in your face and it's just, like, in their eye. Oh, my God. It was good. That, it, was a, it was a good rush. I liked it. I think it taught me, you know, discipline and hard work, teamwork. I mean, I know it sounds cheesy, but... It, I don't think it, it, at all. Yeah. I, I think the, the thing that sports also teaches you is that somebody can be your quote-unquote enemy for 60 minutes and then you can put that aside and shake hands at right. the end and maybe even go get a get a drink that that there it teaches you that there can be this um 
I don't know, this dynamic to human inter- interaction that it doesn't have to be once right. you and I square off, we're enemies forever. It's like you're trying to do one thing, I'm trying to do another. I'm not going to take it personally. Yeah, Yeah. I'm not going to take it personally. We each have a, and I think it helps people in the business world to to not take things uh, personally. Because if you if you have grudges in like your professional life, if you're a person that can't let go of grudges, that becomes pretty unwieldy in your in your professional life to not be able to let let shit go. Oh, it's the worst, and it's a time waster. Total. It's. it's an energy suck because I can I can get a resentment like that. I mean, I'm getting better, or I'm getting better at recognizing. I haven't even known that I've been like resenting people until I got to. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm mad at that person. It's uh, we. That's what that ball of fire yes, in my stomach is. That's that's <laughs> why my stomach is filling up with acid. Um, yeah. What are some common things that you get resentful at people for? I get resentful when I feel like somebody's trying to be competitive or if I can sense that they're trying to manipulate me or condescending people. Um, Because I think I know everybody's intention. That's my problem. I'm like, oh, I know what you're getting at, whether it's the truth or not, but I think I know. So... um, Yeah, or I resent, like, I hate it when somebody says they'll do something and then they won't return your email or call. That gets me the worst. Like, false promises. That is definitely what makes me the the maddest. Yeah. Did you, did you, was your dad a false promise person? Um... No, he didn't promise anything. <laughs> he was like, uh, I think he was pretty straightforward. Uh, this weekend's going to be shitty. We're going to rent some movies and go to McDonald's. That's yeah. it. Which was actually not bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he wasn't like. Was there someone in your life that was. I'm trying that way? to think. My mom was amazing. Like, I mean, she never. She wasn't a bullshitter. Is she still around? Yes. My mom is doing really well. She owns. Um, a restaurant and uh she works so much and she's gotten so much more mellow and nice and and nurturing and my sister just had a baby so now that she's a grandmother it's totally shifted i think yeah and the the reason i uh i ask is because i've i've noticed like one the the two deepest deepest insecurities that i have is a fear that um, I'm forgettable and a fear of being abandoned, of being left behind. Everybody like yeah. involved in something and I'm left out. And when situations have come up that involve that, it's visceral. I yes. mean, I feel literally like I'm going to die. Yes. Uh, the abandonment thing, that that is exactly how I feel. Exactly. Where I'm like... I'm not a part of that. I really am invisible. I think it's a fear that 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 I'm invisible, that I don't matter. Right. Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> it sucks. How do you stop it? Uh, I call someone um, or I stare at the wall with my mouth open until I cry. Yeah. <laughs> it or I numb myself out with you know with with something. Um, what, like chocolate? 
chocolate or you know the one that i've been doing lately um was was porn I, you know i started looking at at porn i had been away from it for like a couple of years and um I don't know. There was just like two o'clock in the morning and I was just feeling like I wasn't enough. Yeah. And uh, I was like, this sounds like a good idea, even though I know that that's just going to make me want to look at more porn and right. it's going to be a waste of time. But when you're in that, maybe I should just speak for myself, but when I'm, I'm in that f- zone where I feel like I'm literally disappearing, like I don't matter, it. I need something to jolt me out of it like a cattle prod. Yeah. I don't want the long patient solution. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to call somebody well, at 2 in the morning. What works best for you? What works best? The healthy choice? Yeah, the healthy choice. Calling, Calling someone? someone? Um, writing about it? Yeah. Praying or meditating? Um, or just sitting in it and... And going, okay, this is what I'm feeling. This isn't necessarily reality, but right. I'm just going to observe what I'm feeling. Yeah. But those are so hard when it when you feel it in your chest. When I feel loneliness, I feel it in my chest and down my arms. Yeah. And like, yeah. It's it's physical. It's so physical. It's not just like a thought. Like oh, it's, right. it takes over your your ner- It's like your nervous system setting off bombs all over your body yeah it is i'm asking you these questions because i have that exact same feeling and you know i think i want i don't know if i want to be held i i think i want to be held by certain people like who that i'm like stressed out about like a close super close friend like somebody that i love Somebody that I really, 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 really love. I, I would like. I don't know if I, if a stra- if a, if a stranger held me. I'd be like. I'd probably fake it. I'd be like, hey, sorry, sorry, I'm crying. What's your name? <laughs> but yeah. So what works for you when that that sadness and that emptiness and the and the loneliness sets in? What are what are the unhealthy? ways of dealing with it and what are the healthy ways of dealing with it the unhealthy i'll just sit and stew i'll sit and i'll just like really get into it and i think that's the most unhealthy i'm not really into porn i'm not an eater so i don't have really any I, that my most unhealthy thing is, is I don't do anything. I sit and stew. I'll try to outthink it, which never works. But, I, you know, I'll be aware. I'm like, this isn't even true. You know, what you're thinking is not, I'll have that, but I'll still feel like mm. in your chest, in your stomach, in your arms. So that's the unhealthy. Maybe I'll get into porn. <laughs> I want to get into rec- porn. <laughs> I, don't, I don't recommend it. You know, I got I to gotta say, though, it sounds like that's the best possible unhealthy choice anybody could make and i don't even know if that's unhealthy if if you can do that and not blame yourself and just try to observe it i think that's super healthy yeah it just hurts how do you not get there though but I i i think it's unrealistic to expect it to not hurt to just be able to to think a thought and have something that powerful just vanish. Right. So maybe what you're doing is actually really good. 
Do you think I'm growing? Well, I don't know you before that. So, but I think that, I think you should give yourself credit for for yeah. doing that and not reaching for some type of distraction. I, th- I think that's really commendable. Uh, you know what that sound means. It's time to give our sponsor a little bit of love. Our sponsor this week is Onnit, your one-stop shop for, that's what I like to call it, uh, your one-stop shopping website for uh, for all your health needs. Uh, something, Three things they sent me uh, a couple of weeks ago that I fucking love. Um, their Hemp Force Choco Maca protein powder um, and their uh, vitamin packs. It's called uh, Total Primate Care. There's a day pack and a night pack. Love it. It's giving me more energy playing hockey. And I like to say that I'm still not scoring goals, but I'm doing it quicker. Love the Choco Maca protein powder. There's no sugar in it. There's uh, It's vegan. There's no dairy. There's no soy. And what I like about it is I can get out the door quickly. It First of all, it tastes great. It's like literally being punched in the face by a chocolate fist wrapped in velvet. Uh, what I love about it is it's a quick breakfast. And I, I just love being able to, to make one of those in five minutes, drink it down, and then get out the door and get to a coffee shop so I can sit and think about myself. Love it. And by the way, that kettlebell they sent me, still sitting there. I'm going to say my depression gets lifted before that thing does. Yeah, but I think I'm lucky in that sense that I haven't. I think in early sobriety, I think I turned to sex a little bit. I was a little I was like sluttier sober than I was when I was drinking. That's so common, though. Yeah. People that get sober is then that becomes like their their new. They they just need some type of drug to take them out of themselves. Right. And I'm not even, I I don't know, but it was just for a little bit. Like I had this thing, I was like, this isn't, this is awful. So. Which is a terrible thing to say when you're orgasming. (laughs) Booze is better than this, by the way. Uh, Hurry up. (laughs) Espresso was mine in my early sobriety. Nine shots of espresso a day. Oh my God. Yeah. My stomach would literally ache when I laid down at night. Did you ever smoke? Uh, I did, but not before uh, I quit. I, before I quit uh, drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. But um, let's get let's get back to. I, there was a thread there that I feel like I lost. My dad. What are my some mom. What are some seminal moments from from your childhood that kind of, or your life that that stand out that you feel like were as painful, embarrassing, transformative, enlightening. Confusing. I would always get ups- I'm not done. <laughs> okay, go ahead. More adjectives. Um, I think the ones that hurt the most when when my mom was mad at me because my dad, I was sort of there were you know ten walls up by the time I was a teenager. So I feel like anytime my mom was mad at me, I it was like so painful. So painful. I remember she was dropping me off at gymnastics practice one day. And I said something like snotty or, you know, I had a mouth. And she just like backhanded me. (laughs) And I was like, and she never was like that. I think she had just had it. But it was just like in the car right before gymnastics practice, which I hated being a gymnast too. I would get that, that I was so afraid of gymnastics, but I didn't quit because I didn't want my mom to be disappointed. 
So now we're getting somewhere. So <laughs> it was, um, I don't know what happened, but right before gymnastics, when I was afraid to go to gymnastics practice and I got in a fight with my mom, I was just like, I'll never forget that moment. Cause she never was like that. And you know, since my dad was out, not there really physically or mentally most times, you didn't expect anything from him. Yeah. So she was my, she's the only thing I got. And she's mad at me and smacking me. She was just like, whap! Which I would probably, I don't know if I, if I would ever do that. But I remember that. And um, so any anytime my mom, uh, still to this day, if my mom's disappointed in me, I want to, I want to end it. I'm going to, there was a time what where. What do you mean when you say end it? Like. Kill yourself kill or kill myself? No, I mean I'm being I'm exaggerating. It's just painful because I because I look up to her, even though we have completely different ideas about how to live life or what to do. Blah blah blah. I just really I like her. Does she know that you feel all these things about her? I don't know. One well one time. I used to be really, when I first started doing comedy, I was sort of dirty. Like, it was just my go-to act. And I had this animated short film. And I showed this short film. Um, and it was like, it had sex in it, and blah, you know, it's my character. But it was just like, jokes animated. And she was mortified. Like, it was most of her friends there. And I was like, drunk, doing a show, showing my cartoon. You know, all the young people loved it, but she hated it. Her her friends hated it. She was, like, so embarrassed. And so after that, we... I She didn't talk to me the way that she used to talk to me. And um, so I was like, oh, my gosh. It was so crappy. But I was still mad. I was like, Mom, it's a cartoon. I was still sticking up for my art. And I was like, it's a cartoon. It's not me. And she's like, yeah, but it's all about sex. It's... And then, um, God, I hope she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> I, I, I would think it would be awesome for her to listen to this because your love for her is so beautiful. Yeah, but you I'm like... Saying, oh, well, she slapped me once and then she didn't like my comedy. What <laughs> fucking parent doesn't lose their shit occasionally with their, right. with their kid? Right. Well, I, I know, but I'm thinking if I was a parent, I wouldn't want some kid, my kid on like a podcast air, airing the dirty laundry. But anyway, she was really disappointed in me and my comedy and I knew it and she would told me. And so I was... And then I don't know what happened. Oh, I had a, a conversation with her. And I think I was drunk, but I remember it. And I was like, Mom, I'm like, you are the only stable thing I have in my life. I'm like, I just need your approval. And she was going through menopause, too. It was not good a good timing, mix. Amber. It was not a good mix. So she was, ha you know, she was like... Uh, really super emotional which she's normally not or really super angry and i'm just like needy full of fear so it was a big it was a time but I, you know i was a drunk mess i wasn't a, you know i just wanted to do what i wanted to do and and just love me no matter what this is how i am 
without like having any awareness of of anything. I don't know. That's got to be so hard for a parent when you see your kids spiraling out of control and you don't know what to do because you're so concerned about them. That's got to be fucking crazy making. But here's the thing. I, I agree. And I don't, I don't, if I have a child, I'm going to be a neurotic mess. But here, she didn't, when I told her that I quit drinking and that I was an alcoholic, she was like, oh, I didn't know it was, it was that bad. But she didn't, I, I hit it very well and I'd only go home three times a year. So they didn't see me on an everyday basis. Even my closest friends were like, oh, I just thought you'd like to party. Because again, I didn't get in fights. I was paying my bills. It was like so under the radar. But I did call her once from New York. Just, I had a few like horrible drinking times. And I was, and uh, I called her and I was like, I think I'm an alcoholic. And I was crying. She's like, well, just don't drink. I was like, oh, okay. And this is coming from someone whose father died from alcoholism, who's, mar- who's married alcoholics. Just just don't drink. Stop drinking. I'm like, are you? That's how like tough she was. She's not now. I could call her crying now and she'd be like, what's what? You know, she's so sweet. So she, you know, she's had to, she's went through a lot. But yeah. And then when I saw her next, she's like, are you okay with, like, drinking? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Because you know how you have those moments before you get sober of, like, when you first are aware that it's a problem, but you still might drink for years after? It was, it was like, it was like, it was that. That last leg where there's shame with the drinking, where you're like, I shouldn't be doing this, Ugh. but I don't know what else to do. I can't stop. So... You, I have to say, you're. That just strikes me as so um, beautiful. the 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 way you The way you talk about your mom is. Uh, I, I can just hear the the love that you that you have. It's okay. I'm glad people can't see this. I think I'm going to start my period. <laughs> okay. I'm okay. And that had to have been terrifying when you feel like your mom is all you got. And she's mad at you. Yeah, it's the worst. It's the worst. And I never really thought about it until I'm like talking to you about it. I mean, like when you feel it, you're like, oh, this is shitty. But to like look back and be like, oh my God, this woman who's amazing hates me or is mad at me. It's a, it's not a good feeling. And you know, and how, how can parents not be mad at their kids sometimes, you know? Oh yeah. I'm sure they could hate that. Like, I feel like parents could easily hate their child at any moment. Just like hating running an errand, just that sort of fleeting annoyance. I, I think for sure. Um, and she, you know, she 
got she married my dad when um she was 19 had my brother when she was 21 me when she was 24 and they opened up a business together so i feel like she she just had to be like the solid rock from the beginning and since her dad was an alcoholic and she had younger siblings and my grandma worked all the time so she's always been an adult yeah she's always been like let's do this what needs to be done she doesn't she's 60 now 60 or 61 and um work seven days a week at the restaurant she'll have a day off she'll be like oh i mowed the lawn finished the garden uh i drove up to colorado springs to have lunch with a friend now i'm gonna babysit babysit so like she does not stop i think that's her her go-to behavior her numbing like bam 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 so you did a bit on uh last comic standing where you talked about her being married four times is that true (laughs) three three she's on her third yeah oh the last names yeah oh what what is it god that's that's so old my mother's been married i probably say four times so and I have siblings. We all have different last names. There's Redinger, Tozer, and McFarlane. We sound like a really shady law firm, <laughs> and it's a shitty law firm because there's not a Jew in it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. Oh, and then I'm like, yeah. So it, you know, when a divorce would happen, happen, all of the siblings would split up. So I was at Disney World the other day, and I saw someone that looked familiar, and I was like, hey, man, wait a minute. Weren't you my brother from, like, 1989 to 1993? What's happening? That's the joke. If you could express to your mom how you feel about her, what would you you say to her? God, (laughs) so... This is so intense. I'm going to probably take like a four-hour nap after this. Um, You know, I would just let her know that I love her so much and I'm so grateful. And it took me a long time to feel this way because I feel like there was a lot of resentment up until probably till I got sober just because... maybe because of the tough love part of her because there was no like how was school give me a hug to you know like question about my day it was like she was so busy and so busy taking care of everything that I was like even though she was at every single game and supportive I feel like I didn't understand her and she doesn't understand me I think even to this she thinks I'm I think she thinks I'm a mystery because of just what I do and, you know. um. She sounds like a very linear person and comics are so not linear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She she is. And I think she's had to be because she had kids at a young age and she just had to keep her shit together and provide and be... um, even though she, even now she's more open-minded like she's traveling more and she's taking these breathing classes and she's really into self-help when we ride in the car i'm like Ooh, what self-help 
book do you have? And she, she has all these like audio tapes. So it's really fun. We, we sort of bond over self-help because she's re- recently like got into that. But, but I would just let her know that I love her so much and that like I'm, I, I understand her now more than I ever have. And like, I'm not mad at her. And I think I would try to, I would hope that she would ex- try to understand me, you know, because I don't, and I don't make it easy because I'll, I'll, I'm so used to being silent. Even now when I go home, I'll get in the car. She'll pick me up from the airport. She'll be like, how are you doing? I'm like, fine. Everything's good. Like I don't give her, I don't give her nuggets. Sometimes if I'm in a good mood, I'll be like, oh, this how ha- you know, I'll tell her tiny truths about my life. But I think maybe I would tell her that I would try to get better at telling her stuff. Because sometimes our conversations are like, hey, you live? Yeah, I'm alive. (laughs) Talk to you later. (laughs) But sometimes I'll call her and be like, this is that. Like, she she might be the person that I want to talk to. But I told her, I always snap at her because she'll give me advice. Like, I'll be like... I'll be like talking about living in Los Angeles and how hard it is and she'll give me advice on living in Los Angeles. I'm like, you've never even lived here. What are you talking about? <laughs> so it's that, you know, like typical mom-daughter stuff. Push-pull, push-pull. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think she's getting... I'm like, sometimes I just want you to listen. I want you to listen. Ask me questions. Because she will, she, you know, it's immediate, like telling me what yeah. I should do. That can be really, really hard in a relationship. And some people, people that have always been problem solvers, it, go to that place and they don't know. Somebody just wants to feel felt and feel heard and feel like, be reminded that they're alive and walking and breathing on this earth and loved and don't have to do anything right. to get or or keep that that love. Yeah. For the first 15 years of my marriage, I didn't understand that that's what my wife wanted, was she just wanted to me to listen. And so I would get so frustrated because I would keep throwing solutions out. Right. And I, I, in my egotism, couldn't see why she wasn't taking my advice. And so it, it was this crazy-making thing. So now do you get it? Oh, I totally get it. I totally get it. And I, and I actually now crave that even more than she did in our relationship now that I'm getting vulnerable, mm-hmm. which I wasn't when I was the problem solver because that's I had to protect myself. So there was so much pain inside that to open that up was way too scary. So it was much easier to go, okay, we're just functioning. We're just achieving things. We're just, everything is a, pro- a problem to be solved. Nothing is about feeling anything. Right. And so you just kind of go through the day ticking things off, but not going, how does that make me feel? Yeah. But it's a bomb that builds inside of you. Right. Or at least for me, it did. Well, sometimes it's hard to listen to people who are in pain and and maybe you've been there so you want to spout out your solution. I have two younger sisters and and the youngest one will call me and just 
she, I mean, she's sensitive. She's emotional. She's up. She's down. And she and she'll call, and I just want to scream at her. So I, you know, from from both ends, it's like, well, duh. Why don't you just? I I, I have both. Like, just listen to me. Listen, listen to my problem without giving me a solution, and then listen to the solution that I have for your problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I think support groups are so great because it's a room full of people listening to right. you, and for that couple of minutes that you're sharing, the rules are they're not allowed to chime in yeah. and tell you their solution. Yeah, and. It may be a half hour until the support group is over, and by that time, they've maybe even forgot what they were going to say to you, but they don't forget to hug you right. and tell you, you know, that they love you or they're rooting for you or right. to call them anytime. Yeah. And, and that's such a, oh my God, you feel, you feel like you exist. Right. Yeah, and it's comforting, or they'll they'll say this happened to me too. Yeah, and then they have a story about what you're going through, because you feel so lonely sometimes. Like all of us have the same base emotions, and sometimes when you're feeling, you f you feel like you're the only one that's ever felt like this because you're so unique, or your problems are way bigger than anybody else's, even those in like third world countries. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that sometimes, no, I don't think that, but, um, it's just such a low, it's the loneliness that could, and you feel like it's going to last forever. Yes. One of the things that I, I want to do, and I will probably have done it by the time this airs, but I want to start doing live group recordings with listeners where they bring surveys, they print out surveys that they relate to survey responses. Um, from the website that they relate to and to read them and talk about why they feel a kinship with that person. I think it would be, I just love when I see two people that have experienced the same thing that they thought they were alone in. Mm. That is just, it, I can't find the words to describe it. It just... It's beautiful. It really is. It that takes away that feeling in my chest and my arms. That terrible that terrible that Grand Canyon. Oh my god. The Grand Canyon that you pushed yourself off into <laughs> without a parachute on purpose. And you're going to survive it with a decapitated head. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do some uh some fear oh you know what one question that i wanted to have um i wanted to ask you is being bisexual do you look for a different thing in a man than you do in a woman or is what is attractive about them different like is one more physical and the other is more emotional what what you look for or what turns you on in somebody well just to clarify i 
I haven't been with a woman since I got sober. So I always joke about being, I thought I, I thought when I got sober, it was possible that I was a lesbian, which I still, there's still like, it's still there, but just so like, I mean, maybe the word bisexual made, makes me nervous because I've been with men since I got sober, but I do feel like I could be gay if that makes sense. Um, so, but with men, it's always physical. It's always like this extreme, but it's not a lot of men. It's like one man every few years that I will even like be, for the most part, I'm like, don't touch me, dude. But if I'm, if there's like one person that I'm attracted to, it's like so physical, it's like hot and passionate. With girls, it's definitely emotional. Some of my best relationships have been super, super, super close. And I, well, a lot of women, it's, this isn't like, but you know, a best girlfriend to where it was the best thing ever. Um, and then being physically attracted to girls, I don't know if it was like, sometimes I feel like I could kiss a girl now in sobriety. I'm like, ooh, I have a girl crush on her. I bet you I could kiss her, but I don't. But when I was drunk, I was just like, let's make out in the bathroom, whoever. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, it would be interesting. I sort of wish I would like really fall for a girl because it's not working out with guys right now. What's 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 the problem? I just I don't know if it's me or if it's them. Like, I feel maybe like I have a little bit of Seinfeld, you know, just nitpick. Like, I can't do that because of this. Or, you know, they're like this. But I'm still hanging out with, like, party people. So, just because of comedy. And uh, I feel like I have yet to find somebody. I don't need a sober guy. But I I don't want somebody that gets drunk a lot. Even if they're not an alcoholic, I don't want to date somebody... So I haven't found that yet. I'm still sort of attracted to party boys and uh which is fu- like it's fu- it's it's fine and fun but I get really nervous. Not that I'm going to drink but that I'm going to live a, a long life with somebody who's self-medicating and missing out on like a true experience on the planet. You know, I can't but I'm physically attracted to that. So I'm working on it. Um but I just hope I find somebody that uh, that I like spending time with. And I don't know if it's just not... Because I, I'm okay being alone. I sort of like to be alone. I could do, I'll go to the movies by myself. I'll go hiking by myself. But I want to be with somebody who wants to do those things. And it's, it's like super fun. And we could... Um, talk about anything because I feel like if I date somebody who drinks a lot there's that silence (laughs) I just thought of that there's that silence that I can't stand because even if it's talked about like hey I don't you know your drinking makes me feel uncomfortable Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I'll work on it. The next day, silence. (laughs) (laughs) I can't do it anymore. But um, I think I'm going to... I'm glad you 
interviewed me because now I'm gay. <laughs> I'm 100% gay. I'm glad we figured this out. Um, so, I don't know if I... I for, even forgot your question, but I just rambled. No, I was just asking what what do you look for? Is there is there a difference in what you look for in a guy versus a versus a girl mm-hmm. in terms of romantic? No, I just like who I like. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. I like funny, sweet people. Ch- if she's a chick, she's got to have huge tits. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would probably make me nervous. Do you ever find yourself objectifying men or women? I don't think so. No. Sometimes, sometimes I feel like the jokes that I write could be like a man hater. Like if I'm just like mad at a boy, I can just really dig in and make fun of boys in general. You know, like commercials do. I feel so bad for you guys. Commercials make men look so dumb. So sometimes I feel like I could like group you all into this general like piggish category, which I recognize I do, but you know, it's well, comedy. It's not, it's not like there's not a basis in fact for right. that, but I do. I do get pissed off when people say all men are, you know, yeah. amusing little children. Oh, that that yeah. bothers me. And I and I know that bothers me because that is how my mom treats me. And that mm. is or I should say that's how she can treat me sometimes and that just pushes my fucking buttons. Yeah. Um Yeah. Do you want to do uh, some fears and loves? Sure. Do you got them? Yeah. They're on my phone. What? I'm I'm afraid of not trying hard enough. Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, fears uh, of a listener named Arthur. Okay. Uh, he says, I'm afraid that I'm not really depressed and I'm just trying to use depression as an excuse for my laziness and self-indulgence. Oh, my God, do I relate to that one. <laughs> But isn't that depression? <laughs> but it doesn't matter. That sick part of your brain that wants to torture you will, will find anything it can to make you feel bad about yourself. Even when you're depressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> am I angry or am I just angry about anger? Um, okay, I'm afraid of sabotaging relationships. Uh, I'm afraid that I sound like an idiot when I talk with people who are more intelligent and more successful than I am. Oh, I feel that too. Um, I'm afraid of my face getting mangled. Uh, I'm afraid that I've forgotten what true joy and happiness feel like and that I'll never have those feelings again. I'm afraid of getting kidnapped. I'm afraid that I won't gain the strength to resolve the issues that have come between me and my parents before they die. This guy is deep. He is, and he is hitting a lot of my core shit. Holy crap. Um, I'm afraid my mom isn't proud of me. Um, I'm afraid that my 16 years of regular porn use has irreparably damaged my ability to feel empathy for and connect with other people. 16 years. I'm afraid of... That's just one session. Oh, my... So many Kleenex. (laughs) Yeah, actually, it was 15 years, but there was so much Kleenex he couldn't open the door to get out, so he figured might as well hang in there for another year and just jerk off. Oh, my God. I think I think that's depression. Um, 
I'm afraid of palm tree debris landing on my head when I'm riding my bike. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that too. They're fucking heavy. And I've when those seen things fall. Fall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can die. Uh, we have an avocado tree in our backyard, and some of them are fucking huge, and they'll fall from like. 25 feet up and I'm afraid that I'm either going to get beaned or one of my dogs is going to get beaned. Um, <laughs> Arthur says, I'm afraid that by being overly concerned with what other people think of me and by trying to be the person I think people want me to be, I've made it impossible to truly know myself and for other people to know the real me. Oh my God, this guy is inside my head and walking around with reckless abandon. He's super aware of yeah. his stuff. You're going to be fine. That guy's going to be fine. He, just he needs- If he is not in a support group, he needs to get in one just for other people to right. benef- benefit from his ability to articulate. Yeah, he can communicate his... Oh, my God. What's his name? Arthur. I want to give Arthur. him a fucking hug. Arthur, good job. Um... I'm afraid I'll always be trying to feel good and not just feeling good. I totally relate to that one. Uh, I'm afraid that I'll never learn to truly be myself with other people, so I'll have to choose between pretending to be someone I'm not and isolating myself. I'm afraid of struggling financially when I'm older. I have that one, a deep, deep one of that one. Like being like 75 and like applying for a job and, and they're just like, why would we hire you? You're 75. Right. And just like, because I don't know what else to do. Yeah. Um, or it's just sitting in regret and going, why did I not work harder? Right. Uh, Arthur says, I'm afraid of being vulnerable. He's pretty good on this list of getting vulnerable. Yeah. I'm afraid of becoming bitter and angry. Uh, I'm afraid that no one will ever love me just as I am without feeling the need to try to change me, and I'm afraid that I'll never love anyone that way. I I just thought of this one. I'm afraid that I'll never be trusting enough to let somebody love me. That's deep. That's good that you can recognize that, because I think some people, that's always on their that's in a subconscious level that wall is up and so they don't even know they have that wall but i think the first step is recognizing that that wall exists Mm -hmm. so the fact that you can recognize that i think is he helped me i just thought of it fucking love the listeners of this show (laughs) love you too amber you've been a great a great guest i well let's move right into loves and i'm going to do the first one I fucking love bonding so deeply with somebody that I just met. I just love it. I know. This is this is something like I always love talking, overanalyzing feelings and emotions and stuff. But this is the first time like I've never talked about my dad like this, except in therapy. And I've never talked about like my mom like this, ever. So, way to go, dude. <laughs> I hope you tell your mom how you feel about her at some point, because it's really beautiful. I will. Okay. 
I love when my baby niece grabs onto my finger real tight. Uh, I'm going to be doing Arthur's Loves as well. I love how clear the air is in the morning after a strong spring storm. Say that fast three times. <laughs> um, I love when I'm in love with someone and we can't stop laughing because we're be- being silly. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I love that. I my favorite moments are when my wife and I can't stop laughing and then we she'll look at me and then she'll start laughing harder. <laughs> and then we we're both laughing at how hard we're laughing. Yeah. Oh, the thing yeah. that was funny isn't even really funny anymore. It's how we can't stop laughing. It's like getting the giggles when you're at like a sleepover. Yeah. Um I love running while a light rain is falling. I like that too. Oh, that's great. I love when I have a horrible thought and something happens to prove that that thought isn't true. Uh, I love falling asleep to the sounds of steady rain and softly rolling thunder. I hope he lives in Portland or Seattle. I know. He's a weather guy. I hope he doesn't live in the desert. Um, I love it when I finish things. I love the extremely rare times when I am completely outside of my head and truly living in the moment. Oh, yeah. I love running so fast my lungs hurt. That's a good one. Uh, I love it when someone makes me laugh so hard I tear up and gasp for air. I love retrospect. Uh, I love, and this is his last one, I love going on a long drive with nowhere in particular to go. I've never thought of doing that, but that that sounds kind of cool. Yeah, it sounds cool. I have one more. Okay. I love writing jokes about things that make me cry. Amber, thank you so much for for opening up and getting so vulnerable and sharing um, so much of your inner, your deep inner life with uh, with me and the listeners is really, uh, is really nice. Well, thanks for interviewing me and making me cry. <laughs> you made me cry, not, <laughs> not my childhood. <laughs> and people can follow you uh, at Amber Tozier. Yeah. And Tozier is T-O-Z-E-R. Yeah. And um, and do you have a website as well? No, or just a Facebook just page? Just a, yeah, Facebook, Amber Tozer, and then I do a web series called Knit Twits, where we take tweets and turn them into sketches. And so look, look out for those. I tried to friend you on Facebook, but your, your friend thing is full. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to cut somebody loose and friend me. I have... They say the max is 5,000, but I have 5,200. Yeah. So I wonder if I have to ax a, a few hundred. I'll do it. I'll do it for you. <laughs> Thank you, Amber. <laughs> thanks. Many thanks to uh, to Amber. After I uh, emailed her and told her I was putting her episode up this week, she, uh, she emailed me back and she said she was so nervous. And, you know, I, I think that's usually a sign that, that it's a good episode because... Um, it usually means that we're revealing a part of ourselves that we want to hide from from everybody else. And uh, I don't know about you, but that's that's the kind of stuff that comforts me when I hear somebody share that kind of stuff. Um, before we uh, get to this stack o surveys, uh, that I'm going to take it out with. Want to remind you, there's a couple different ways to support the show. Uh, go to the website which is uh, mentalpod.com. It's also the Twitter name you can follow me at. And uh, all kinds of stuff you can do there. You can join the forum. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can support the uh, the show financially. You can take uh, one of the, I think we got like 10 surveys up there. Please go take those. 
um, and really helps me get to know you guys. And as far as supporting the show, there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can support us financially by making a one-time PayPal donation or uh, making a recurring monthly donation, which helps so much. You know, listen to my dog chiming in. It helps so much. It's really the foundation that allows me to to run this uh, show, to pay the bills and all the things associated with it. And it just, uh, even as little as five bucks a month uh, means the world to me. It, it really, truly does add up. So um, I should probably um, speak more, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the word would be, with more passion about it because it's super important. It's super important to me and it gets me closer to my goal of uh, being able to support myself doing this. And then comes a plane and some helicopters and other noises that weren't there uh, before I started recording. Um, you can also support the show by uh, when you shop at Amazon, enter through the search portal on our homepage. It's on the right-hand side about halfway down. And uh, make sure that your ad blocker isn't on, otherwise it might not show up. Um, although I don't think that is technically considered an ad. Oh my God, I'm spiraling out of control. You can also support us uh, non-financially by going to iTunes and uh, giving us a good rating. Boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show. And uh, by spreading the word through social media, that helps hugely. So please do that. Facebook, Reddit, Tumblr, you name it. I appreciate it. All right. Let's get to these fucking surveys, huh? Enough of my jacking around. This is from the body shame survey uh, taken by a guy who calls himself always looking up. And he's in his 20s about his body. What do you like or dislike? He writes, I'm in my mid-20s and only five foot three. I, I usually take jokes very well, but recently there's been a lot of women uh, making fun of my height. And it makes me feel like a 12-year-old that no one would ever look at sexually. You know, my thought about that is that if they were really turned off by your height, they wouldn't say anything. So they probably think you're cute. So uh, be happy that they're looking at you and they're saying something. What do you think of that? Suck on that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Jeff. About his anorexia, he writes... A numbing emptiness that claws at the mind and erases the memory except for the calorie intake numbers. Thank you for that. Um, this is from the body shame survey filled out by a uh, transgendered male to female um, who uh, gives the name Aaron slash Aaron, A-A-R-O-N slash E-R-I-N. Um, Aaron uh, lists... Um, herself as asexual she's in her 30s and she writes i've always just been a flabby skeleton but now i'm properly fat but not in a way i recognize on any male body around me i'm i imagine being able to pull my body off and being confident if i had the mean support and confidence to live as a woman so i hate my anatomy on top of it feeling alien and objectionable to me I want to be beautiful. I want to be desirable to to women as a woman, but instead I'm just a passable male. I try to dress my body in an appealing way, but no clothes fit me in ways I imagine them fitting other biological men, so I can't be as fancy as I'd like or sufficiently schlubby enough to blend in to the good old boy nightmare that is my workplace and where I see nearly everyone I'll have contact with in any given day. 
Well, my heart goes out to you, Aaron. Um, I can't pretend to know what that is like to to have to um, to deal with that. So sending you a big hug. This is from uh, Struggle in a Sentence, uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Confused M about her anxiety. She writes, it's just a phone call. It'll be over in a few seconds, yet I agonize over it for days. And when it's over, I always realize it was a million times easier than I thought it would be. Oh my God, do I relate to that. The 500-pound phone, we call that in, uh, in our support group. Uh, same, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Record Lady. About her depression, she writes, Major, like the meanest girl in high school is living in my head, and I get to be the bully, victim, and bystander all at once. That is genius in its succinctness. Um, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself 999. About her anxiety, she writes, like you feel that you're going to explode all the time and constantly have to contain yourself. It's basically a season of 24 all within a split second. Oh, what a great description. About her love addiction, she writes, I put being able to see him over everything else and I knew it was wrong and unhealthy, but I couldn't stop. About her sex addiction, she writes, just to prove I am worthy. Oh, in a man's eye, it is so much different. About her codependency, she writes, I have so much to fix within myself, but the moment I see a weakness in someone else, it is my opportunity to forego what I need and consume myself in someone else's problems. Uh, and about being a sex crime victim, she writes, I was molested for 10 years by my older brother. He has a daughter now, and we don't have to talk about it, but he knows what he did, and I forgive him. You know, I wonder what that's got to be like when you haven't talked about somebody having done that to you and they're now a parent with a child of the sex that you are as the victim. That's got to be... I'd be interested to, to what your thoughts are on some of how some of you have handled that. Have you expressed your concern to that person? Have you talked about what happened to you? Is it inappropriate to do that i i don't even know where to begin and those i think are are those kind of subjects i think are the ones i like discussing most with with you guys because um i'm absolutely clueless clueless on what is the right thing to do is there even a right thing to do uh, i guess it depends on each relationship and what the the past is this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself dina dork she is um, gay and qualifies prefer, prefer women, but occasionally men. She's in her 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. When I'm feeling lonely or neglected in my relationship, I fantasize about sleeping with men. I consider myself but a lesbian, but men are easy to get attention from. Once I cheated with my best friend's husband. I feel guilt about it, but I also feel, feel very sexually aroused by it. I wonder if the sexual arousal is from the, the control and the power of getting that guy to cheat on his wife or is part of the arousal from the physical act um, of the sex. I would imagine it's probably more from the, the feeling of power. 
Um, deepest, darkest secrets. I went through a phase where I had a lot of anonymous sex. Sex with complete strangers. People I just met less than an hour ago. People I would never see again. People I never wanted to see again. The thought that I was using them was what made me uh, was what made, what made it feel good to me. Oh, I guess I then, that answers that other question. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about sex with strangers, sex with people I shouldn't have sex with, friends, spouses, coworkers, etc. I fantasize about wearing a strap-on with my girlfriend, though she prefers to be the top. I fantasize about sleeping with more than one girl at the same time, though my girlfriend would never go for that. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? She writes, no. I feel my fantasies and fetishes are too out there for my current partner, and I am too private to share thoughts like that with my close friends. Um, Did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? My thoughts make me feel unfulfilled, and then I feel guilty for wanting something more than what my current partner gives me. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Dinah Dork. What a great name, too. Uh, This is... Uh, also from the Shame and Secrets, filled out by a woman who calls herself August. She is uh, in her 20s, um, bisexual, uh, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. By the way, people that have been the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it, uh, ju- judging by the surveys that I read, they seem to have the most shame and the most difficulty with intimacy, uh, which just confirms my belief that we need to, to, to process that, that pain if we're ever to have a shot at, at true intimacy and authenticity in who we are, especially regarding our, our sexuality, um, or at least asking, being comfortable asking for what we want. Um, her deepest, darkest thoughts. I have thought out different ways of ending the lives of loved ones and strangers alike. I watch shock videos online in hopes to find new ideas of how to inflict pain on those around me and myself. Never do I have these thoughts about people I dislike. Sometimes I think it's my way of trying to figure out how to free good people from an ugly world. That is fucking deep. That is so... That just, uh, you just, I just get the feeling that you are really, um, you're really hurting and, uh, and that, that, I don't know, just sending you a hug. Uh, deepest, darkest secrets. I fear that my fantasies of reenacting my sexual abuse will one day prove to me that I asked for it and somehow enjoyed it during the time of occurrence. I also fear that one day the promiscuity I reveled in as a teenager will come back to haunt me in the form of an incurable sexual disease and I'll end up having to end my life because of the shame of ending up sick and diseased just like my father who was also my sexual abuser. Um, well, I think... You know, how can you not have a heavy outlook on life when your caregiver is your sexual abuser and you're still feeling guilty about something that you should feel no guilt about because it wasn't your fault? And as I've shared many times on this podcast, our fantasies are so related to our past traumas. Um, And sometimes they don't come up until we confront the trauma, which is what happened with me. And, um, hate to be a broken record but um i still have fantasies about being abused again because i don't know why but i felt shame about it for about the first six months and then i was like 
ah, this is my this is my brain's way of trying to go back and have some type of control. So, um, I hope I don't uh, read those too often. You guys aren't sitting there rolling your eyes at it, but I think it's such an important thing for people to just to not blame themselves and to not feel shame about their fantasies and to understand they come from a place that is beyond our control. Uh, this is from also from Shame and Secrets, filled out by a guy who calls himself Ghost. He's straight, he's in his 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, he he uh, writes, I don't know if you would say it was abuse uh, in just the letter or the spirit of the law, but I was 12, she was 22. It was quite confusing to a man who believed that it was love. There were other situations as well. However, I don't feel the need in this moment to elaborate on all of them. That is not um, possibly abuse. That is fucking abuse. And the fact that you thought it was love is what contributed to the abuse, that you were, that she used that power over you to have an inappropriate, an age-inappropriate relationship. You know, that's, what I don't know what you want to call it, molestation, rape, um, but you, a child, is not a willing participant in sex with adults, even if their genitals are excited or their heart is beating quickly. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. My darkest thoughts, uh, what I'm ashamed to admit that I may never be able to fully be honest with one person on every aspect of my life and that no one will ever truly know me completely as a whole person because of my own fears of intimacy. Um, and I didn't purposely put this one after the last one that I read. It just literally comes up every single time. I so urge you to get into a, a sex abuse survivor support group. Don't let anybody minimize what happened to you. Um, a therapist can help you with that, but please don't try to work through this on your on your own. Deepest, darkest secrets, I've been incredibly emotionally abusive to people in my past, specifically so they will feel the way about me that I feel about myself. That, that breaks my heart. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you, complete control, unquestioned, unwavering, 100% control. Getting two or three women to play with and fuck my partner as my partner blows me. Having a hot little 18 or 19 year old fuck me to get a job. Would you ever consider telling a partner a close friend? Absolutely. Uh, I can talk to most of my friends, my partners, everyone. I have no shame about my sexual desires. It's a good outlet to have and I don't feel odd or abnormal for the ones that I didn't even list here. It didn't, um, that I didn't list here now. Uh, you don't have time. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Um, aside from the sexual fantasies, um, sometimes I feel loneliness and depression. Um, I, I think it's great that you don't feel um, guilt about your your sexual fantasies, but I really hope that you can you can get on the path towards healing, and you deserve that intimacy. Intimacy, you deserve to be seen as a whole person. Um, especially the parts of you that you struggle with. Um, that, to me, is what makes a great relationship and feeling seen, felt, heard, and loved unconditionally. That's, I think that's what we all want. But it's fucking scary. Also from the Shame and Secret survey. 
filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Kevin. He's straight in his 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts, never having sex after being dumped by the girl I thought was my soulmate, only girl I've ever been with, no desire to be with another. Deepest, dark, darkest secrets, my family was perfect, my childhood was ideal, why the hell do I want to kill myself? Um, God, you know, the first thing that rings out to me is what you described about this girl and wanting to kill yourself is that it, you know, you might be a love addict. You know, there might be stuff to look at. Um, I don't know. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm not as sexual as I'd like to be. I feel like I'm chemically castrated all the time. I'm not. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner, close friend? No. Uh, she, sex is hard for me to discuss. Um, secrets. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Dislike. I dislike myself because I can't see myself as a person capable of sex. Feeling unattractive and ugly all the time. Kevin, please go talk to somebody. You're getting in a, getting in a support group. It's because, you know, 99% of the time, it's not really about that person that left us. It's about our feelings about ourselves. And until we can learn to be okay with ourselves, it doesn't matter who comes into our life. Um, this is from the Happy Moment survey. Yay, Happy Moment. This is filled up by a woman who calls herself Lynn. She writes, I remember going to the beach when I was younger with my parents. We had an old brown Ford Granada with duct taped bench, bench seats and a large blob of melted crayons that my sister and I had left in the back window that despite my dad's anger about actually had made quite a cool sort of tie-dye piece of art in the back window. We would grab a cooler and stop at the local grocery store to grab some subs and snacks and I remember my mom would always get all three flavors of crushed soda or Shasta if anyone remembers these classics like I do. You know it was a treat. Strawberry grape and orange soda and tons of junk food. We would cruise out to the beach, jamming out to the FM AM radio while my sister and I made up alternate lyrics to songs, usually in some juvenile manner, trying to rhyme lyrics with some sort of bodily function that would make us and my dad giggle to no end and my mom inevitably say, girls, that's no way for ladies to talk. When we finally arrived with so much anticipation, we almost leapt uh, out of the moving car. We would sprint towards the beach while the sand burnt our feet and finally reach the cool relief of water and run until the resistance of the deepening water would force us to fall face first into the soft warm water. We would then spend what seemed like an eternity swimming and building sand castles and running wild. My dad would throw us up in the air out into the deeper part uh, of what felt like being launched into sp in what felt like being launched into space, I thought my dad was the strongest man in the world. When it was time to pack up and go, my mom would always give in to the pleas of my sister and I, saying, "Just five more minutes, mom, please." Even though we had no concept of time at all, we all knew uh, all that we knew is that we never wanted it to end. We would eventually ramble off into the sunset towards home likely that my sister and I would pass out from exhaustion along the way. I love that. I love how descriptive it is. And I think um, any kid that has fond beach memories uh, like, like I did, um, that, that was as close to freedom as it, it gets when you're, when you're a kid. 
and my dad used to toss me too in the water. Those are like my favorite memories of my dad. He was always very playful when he got in the pool. Um, outside the pool, uh, basically a, a a granite statue, but for some reason he just loved water. So I that one really resonated with me. Thank you for that. This next one is from the uh, Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Stuntman. She is... Um, bisexual in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Over the past year and a half, I've really struggled with postpartum depression. During the worst of it, I would fantasize about finding my child dead in his crib or throwing him down the stairs in a fit of rage. The sane part of me didn't want to hurt my baby or have him die, but my warped mind was trying to rid itself of the soul-sucking human attached to me 24-7. I've been working with a talk therapist for over a year to help me deal with this and some other things, but I finally found an antidepressant that seems to really work for me. The rage is gone, but the shame lingers and these thoughts continue to haunt me. My husband had a stroke in his 30s and I am now his primary caregiver. I can't help but be stuck on the idea that my life would have been significantly easier if the stroke had simply killed him. This thought crosses my mind so often that any time I leave the house without him, I expect to come home with him lying dead on the floor. I realize this makes me sound like a terrible person, so please understand that I do love my husband very much, but sometimes it feels like he did die, and this man I am caring for... uh, are just his remains. It would have been less traumatizing if I'd been able to bury him the first time around. Um, you know, I I don't think anybody thinks that you're a terrible person. I think everybody would feel that way in that in that circumstance. I mean, what a what a, a, an overwhelming experience to find yourself in, and. The fact that you're sticking around and doing this, um, I think, makes all of us have respect for you. But how can your brain not go to that place? And please forgive yourself for those thoughts that you used to have about about your kid. Um, what a waste of time beating yourself up for what you used to think. Oh, my God. Um, let's see. Oh, and the other thing, deepest, darkest secrets, years before my cousin molested my little sister, I went into a closet with him, and he told me to take off my pants. I don't think anything happened after that, but the memory is hazy. I never told anyone. I wish that I had, because when he and his family came to stay with us later, my parents would have known to never let him be alone with any of us, and then maybe he would have never touched my little sister. That is not your responsibility. You were a child. And a child should not be counted on or expected to know what to do in a situation that is so adult, you know, it, please, please, you're so hard on yourself. I really hope you can begin to see what a, what a beautiful soul and spirit you have that you're, you're just in, and we're in situations that would have overwhelmed anybody. All right, this is from the Happy Moment survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Corey. She writes, Before things went really wrong with my family, I remember being about five-ish, laying down at the back of our VW square back at night on the way home from my grandma's house. I can still feel the ridges of rubber 
that would leave a mark on my cheek. Smell the dirty, greasy rubber smell, feel the vibration of the engine through the frame. I'm watching the moon race alongside us and can distantly hear my mom and dad talking quietly in the front. I feel so safe, so quiet and peaceful, so cozy in my pajamas, surrounded by the warm bodies of my brother and sister. It was the calm before the storm, but I can conjure that moment when I need to be reminded that I'm capable of feeling safe and contented. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey. Um, I'm just going to read a part of this. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Mademoiselle Noland. And uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. Sometimes when I see women that are more attractive than me or just another woman flirting with my boyfriend, this rage of jealousy hits me. I don't want to feel jealous. I find myself imagining beating her into nothing or somehow embarrassing her in front of a group of people to show my dominance. Deepest, darkest secrets. The man that sexually molested me, I made him a sandwich with peanut butter that was soaked and mixed in Windex and other household cleaners. I never had the guts to give him the sandwich. That really, uh, that image just really stuck with me. This is an email that I got from a listener who calls herself hospice nurse. And um, she writes, I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now, a few episodes a day while I drive and go about my daily life. I am often comforted by the knowledge that so many people feel the same way I have felt to some degree or another. I've personally spent the last 25 years of my life trying to climb out of the black, dirty hole that was my childhood, but that is another email. What I really want to do is offer some hope. I work in an inpatient hospice facility. This is where people who are dying come when they are in some sort of crisis. Maybe they've been getting visiting hospital, hospice care at home, but their pain is now out of control. Maybe they were agitated and confused and uncontrollable or are vomiting blood or bleeding from somewhere else. They may also be transferred from a hospital having just had the news that they are very near the end of life. Most people will stay with us until they die. Others will be able to return home to die or return home until symptoms get out of control again. I am sure that all sounds horrible and unpleasant, and certainly some of it is. People often ask me, how can you do this every day? And my reply is something like this. Here comes the hope part. Most of what I see is people being very, very loving and good to each other. Families gather and say what they feel. There is love bursting from every room. Somehow, at these moments of crisis, humans are able to pull it together and just be for each other. They get water, offer food, wipe brows, report symptoms, just sit and hold hands. The most useful and touching thing, though, is that they talk. They express love. They offer forgiveness, ask forgiveness, climb in bed and comfort and hold. Yes, there are gallons of tears, but what there is not, what I never hear, nobody ever talks about their stuff. Not once, truly never, have I ever heard anyone mention their house, their car, their money, their will, the objects that make up our daily lives. They just are with each other and say what we all should be saying every day. 
Families tell me what nice things a person has done, or how things were so hard, but how they loved their father, mother, sister, brother, etc., and that all that is in the past. Patients show me photos of themselves when they were younger, of their kids, their pets. They tell me who they have loved. They reconnect with estranged children. They cry, and very often they laugh. People who are dying are us, the same variety of screwed-up people you pass every day in your life. Some elderly, and far too many in their 30s and 40s, but it is always the same. Love, love, love. What I have learned from this job is that what is truly important is making some connections with people. It does not have to be perfect to count. If you are protecting yourself by staying in and hiding from people, you are missing out on the one thing that will matter to you in the end, connections to other humans. That is one of the greatest emails I have ever received. Thank you for that. And finally, I want to read a uh, Happy Moments uh, survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Julie Bird. And she writes, When I was a child, my single mother moved my twin sister and I around the country often. We were very poor, and her ability to take care of us was questioned often. Uh, I heard later that the county tried to take us from her for neglect. She left us alone to babysit ourselves in a trailer overnight at age six while she worked as a cocktail waitress. Anyway, we moved to a new school again when I was seven. I was so shy and very nervous. I cried when I did a worksheet wrong. But that very first day at recess time, as I walked alone in a field, a little girl ran to catch up to me. She said, will you be my friend? Before I could answer her, another girl ran up, and then yet another did, until we were a line of second-grade girls walking towards friendship. They were so kind and welcoming, and to this day, this remains one of my happiest moments. I had experienced such rejection and shame for being me. To have had such acceptance so immediately was amazing. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you for that, and thank you all for listening and supporting and I just, uh, that human connection that uh, the hospice nurse talked about, it is what gets me out of bed. And um, I, I encourage you, if you're isolating, get out of your comfort zone, ask for help, join a support group, talk to a therapist, find somebody who you can confide in, all of the above. And um, just know that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.